This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So, um, as I mentioned yesterday, there's sort of a threefold structure to my talks over the next few days, which follow the basic outline of a Summa Theologiae, moving from God and the reality that he creates in and of itself, to focusing on the human person um, as a moral actor. Uh, and then further in, fi in the final analysis, we'll move to consider Christ acting in his humanity in particular uh, as an incarnate uh, reality and the sacramental implications of that for the Eucharist. But throughout all of that, the, the common thread, if you will, that lends intelligibility to all of that, uh, well, among, among many common threads, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> uh, one, one to focus on, particularly in terms of the idea of aesthetics or uh, beautiful appearance in reality or the value of aesthetical experience is the idea of sign. So we talked about that yesterday in terms of knowing God um, and the importance of the transcendentals and the idea of abstraction um, as a Thomistic idea. Today, I wanna, I'm going to move into the, the prima secundae and the secunda secundae. In fact, most of what I'm going to talk about is taken from the secunda part, the secunda secundae, rather, so it's the second part of the second part, right? <laughs> um, and that's where Aquinas is going to talk about um, human acts most directly. Um, so I want to start by saying a little bit about the connective tissue between the prima pars and the secunda pars, and then both of its two parts. And then we'll focus more directly on um, the, the virtue of religion uh, in the context of the virtue of justice. And my objective there is to start to establish, um, so one, the capacity of the human person to be religious, uh, just in a, a natural sense, and to contextualize that in both a personal and a social sense. So as we'll see, the, the virtue of justice provides a lot of resources for thinking about how human religiosity can be both personal and social, uh, and how actually those dimensions really intersect. They, they can't and really shouldn't be separated um, in Aquinas' mind. But all throughout that, the, the concept of sign is super important for Aquinas here, um, not just as a sort of um, expression of, of individual instances of liturgical beauty, although those are important, but as a legal category, actually, that kind of helps Aquinas to structure uh, communal expressions of religiosity. So, all right, without further ado, I'll, uh, I'll get into my paper here. So um, just taking a look at the secunda pars, the first part of, is the prima secunda, the first part uh, of the second part. As the second major structural division of the summa, when compared with the prima pars that precedes it, the prima secunda seems to mark a transition away from the speculative dogmatics of Trinitarian theology and the doctrine of God and towards the subject of anthropology. Nevertheless, Although the human person remains the special focus of the Prima Secundae, indeed, the whole of the Summa's second part, the anthropology found in the Prima Secundae is intentionally framed against the finality of salvation, beginning with a discussion of the human person's last end. Broadly speaking, this reflects the overarching intent which governs the Summa as a whole. In the first question of the Summa, Aquinas defines Sacra Doctrina as those truths necessary for salvation and revealed by God in sacred scripture. In this understanding, the finality of the human person is studied in the light of divine revelation with the aim of ordering the human person toward the end of salvation. For Aquinas, theology is the science that pertains to these saving truths. The structure of the Prima Secundae reflects this intention. For Aquinas, the content of the Prima Secundae is structured by the questions of the human person's last end and the reality of grace. These two subjects comprise the first and the final sections of the Prima Secundae. The intervening topics, which include human acts, passions, habits, sin, and law, are framed against this backdrop. In the Prima Pars, Aquinas already establishes the root of this beatified anthropology in the context of the invisible Trinitarian missions in which the Son and Spirit come to inhabit the human person by grace, dwelling within the rational faculties of intellect and will. As Aquinas indicates in his prologue to this section, the Prima Secundae is in fact conceptually constructed upon 
the structure and content of the prima pars which precedes it, while the first section of the Summa treats the exemplarity of the Trinitarian persons in relation to rational creatures possessed of intellect and will, the prima secundae ter will turn its attention to the rational image of God that is found in the human person specifically. As a result, the exemplarity of the Trinity effectively provides the context for the beatified anthropology that Aquinas deploys in the prima secundae. Moving to the secundae secundae, the second part of the second part, Aquinas begins the second half of this second part with a lengthy prologue in which he situates the scope and purpose of the secundae secundae as a continuation of his project in the prima secundae, where the latter had treated a host of concepts relevant to moral theology, such as virtue and vice, Aquinas positions this following section of the Summa as a closer examination of the particular circumstances of human acts as they occur within specific states of life. Taking its structure from these aims, the Prima Secundae uh, uses the virtues as organizational principles, Secunda Secundae, excuse me, uses the virtues as organizational principles for the text as a whole, beginning with the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and then the cardinal virtues of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Considered within this context, Aquinas's treatment of the connection between the concept of sacrifice and Eucharist, for example, is found within his treatment of justice as a virtue. Following the pattern that Aquinas suggests in his prologue, his treatment of justice as a human act in the Secunda Secundae builds upon the conceptual understanding of law that has already been introduced in the Prima Secundae. Because it provides a central structural division within the Secunda Secundae, Aquinas' treatment of justice is lengthy and wide-ranging, spanning questions 57 through 122, which we won't attempt to cover here. <laughs> um, however, <laughs> um, we're going to focus on a small part of that, which has to do with the virtue of religion in relation to the wider whole. Okay. So justice itself for Aquinas implies rendering what is due to another in a manner that presumes a certain equality. Although the relationship between the human person and God is not construed in the language of equality, uh, it is nonetheless a relationship in which something is owed. And in this respect, religion is said to be annexed to justice as a potential part. That is to say, it shares in many of the qualities of justice. Uh, there are different types of justice, which we won't get into now, but uh, often in natural terms, it's framed as a relationship between equals. Uh, might be between a king and his subjects, but even that isn't quite enough to capture the relationship between the human person and God. But religion, as a potential part, captures that which is appropriate about the language of justice. In this case, as more of a one-sided relationship where we owe something to him, right? Um, so as a virtue in its own right, for Aquinas, religion orders the human person to God. Of its nature, this ordering involves the offering of service and ceremonial rites to God as a means of worship. As a potential part of justice, religion denotes a kind of relation to God in which this worship is owed. Defined specifically as a moral virtue, as opposed to, for, for example, intellectual or theological virtues, for Aquinas, religion is related to God as end, and therefore functions as the means by which things are referred to God as the last end. Not unlike the virtue of justice, for Aquinas, religion can function as a general virtue, and therefore has the ability to command other human acts in such a way that the act of religion is performed through the mediation of the act of another virtue. So effectively, what Aquinas is talking about here is that you can talk about actions that are proper to a virtue where the ratsu of the act is defined by the virtue properly itself. So justice has certain proper acts, but then you could perform other acts for the sake of justice, even if they're not intrinsic acts of justice, they're commanded by it, done ultimately for the purpose of justice. And he's saying religion can function in a similar way. Okay. So beyond this general sense of religion, however, there is an immediate and proper sense of the virtue of religion. It has its own proper acts, which takes place in specific external acts, such as sacrifice, 
and adoration. These virtues are not only commanded by the virtue of religion, but are elicited by it. So that's where you get the the sense of the virtue itself commanding intrinsically the form of the act. Uh, There are certain things that by their nature themselves are religious acts, not just according to the end intended, but according to the nature of the act itself. Many virtues, having their own proper definition in teleology, may be commanded by a virtue like religion to serve the end proper to the commanding virtue. In the case of an elicited virtue, however, there is something proper to the definition of the elicited virtue itself, which makes it a part or subset of the eliciting virtue. Accordingly, the proper acts of religion are those which are elicited by the virtue of religion directly and direct the human person solely to God. As will be shown, the more specific case of sacrifice and the other external acts of religion emerge as uh, acts proper to the virtue of religion. To this end, sacrifice can be identified as a distinct virtue because as an act, it is praiseworthy only because it serves the end of the virtue of religion, which is to give fitting honor to God. While many other virtues might be called sacrifices in as much as they are directed by the virtue of religion to the reverence of God, Sacrifice, in the principal sense, concerns those acts which have no other value according to the scale of another virtue. It is only the fact that they have been done out of reverence for God that renders them good and morally intelligible. So, within the act of the virtue, uh, within the act of the virtue of religion, a person performs a twofold function, serving and worshiping God. In this context, service subjects the person to divine authority, and worship gives fitting reverence to the excellence of God. All acts that are associated with religion, whether elicited as proper acts of religion itself or as acts of of other virtues commanded by reason of religion, perform these two essential functions, uh, serving and worshiping God. For Aquinas, this twofold act takes two forms. In the first case, something is offered to God, and in the second, the person takes up something divine. We'll say a little bit more about what he means by that. So as human acts, all virtues are directed to the good. As a specific act of virtue, therefore, religion is directed to the good of giving honor to the excellence of God. And for Aquinas, religion has both an internal and an external dimension. To this end, Aquinas cites the text of Psalm 84, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God, arguing that true worship involves both the interiority of the heart and the externality of human flesh and bodily action. Nevertheless, although religion certainly has external acts as a human act, Aquinas argues that the virtue of religion actually finds its perfection in the subjection of the human mind to God. One might ask, therefore, what purpose the external acts serve if the whole purpose has already been accomplished by a kind of interior subjection. Um, Aquinas argues that because of the corporeal nature of human existence, this subjection of the mind is necessarily accomplished through the use of external things. However, an order exists between these interior and exterior acts in which the interior acts of religion are are, are primary and are essential to religion itself, while the external acts of religion are understood to be secondary and subordinated to religion's internal acts. Uh, And those internal acts are devotion and prayer, if you're interested. Um, So this is where Aquinas will turn to the idea of sign to help him bridge the, the gap, if you will, between internal acts and external ones. And this is a principle which cuts across his anthropology, not just for religion, not just for justice, for any kind of human act. Um, But what we're going to look at here is how specifically that vocabulary of sign affects his language about the personal and social dimension of human religiosity. Okay, so for Aquinas, outward sign plays a special role in the perfection of the virtue of religion. All virtue represents a perfection of the human person with respect to their end. In a special way, however, the perfection represented by the virtue of religion, which acknowledges the divine excellence and subjects the person to it, is intrinsically tied to the medium of external signs. 
So it's not enough to have a purely internal uh, and subjectivist account of religion. As we'll see, it's also not enough to have a purely um, individualist uh, notion of religion either. So even if it was just you and your internal and then external acts represented by signs, that wouldn't quite be enough either. You need the public square. You need the social dimension of the human person to make sense of this. So to describe this perfection, that is the, the perfection of the interior act through the medium of external signs, um, Aquinas builds on the natural hierarchies that exist between body and soul and between the soul and God. In each case, the lower is rightly subjected to the higher and finds its perfection in this sub subjugation. For Aquinas, this is especially true of the relationship between the human mind and God. Although no human act can contribute to God's perfection, of course, it is by the ways in which we give reverence and honor to God that our mind is subjected to him. And it is in this subjection to God that the perfection of the human mind consists. This is the case because something is perfected by that which subjects, by that which subjects it to its superior, as air is perfected by that which subjects it to the sun by illuminating it. So lower things are perfected by higher things. The human mind is perfected by its creator. So there's a sense of right ordering uh, in, as a potential part of justice in which religion imparts an order that should have been there from the beginning were it not for the fall. And so it's restoring both the personal and the communal dimension of that order. Um, in each of these cases, uh, the thing perfected is not the superior, but the inferior which is subjected to it. So God isn't perfected by our subjugation. We get perfected by him. Likewise, in the context of religion, it is not God who is perfected. I just said that. <laughs> um, okay, so what is it then um, which perfects the human mind in this way? In the case of the relationship between the human mind and God, the human mind has need of those things which will unite it to God and therefore perfect it. Despite the spiritual and invisible nature of the intellect, however, Aquinas insists that things appetible to the senses are required for the perfection of the human mind by subjugating it to God. So lower things are perfected by higher things, but internal acts are perfected by exterior ones. So the human mind, although it's, it's um, not a, a corporeal reality, it's a, a spiritual reality, needs to be perfected by its own external acts, and then all of that needs to be perfected by being subjugated to God. Uh, that's where Aquinas is going here. Um, so external signs are, are an essential and intrinsic part of this process. So because of Aquinas' Aristotelian understanding of human cognition, the perfection of the human mind can never be divorced from the senses. The worship of God, therefore, requires the use of corporal things which, functioning as signs, incite the human mind to spiritual acts which unite it to God. So it actually works the other way, too. Uh, when you perform external acts, it can incite the internal acts. So when you're drawn into the externality of the liturgy, for example, um, it reminds you of, of the type of internal dispositions you ought to have and probably will come to have if you give yourself over to liturgical praxis. Um, so for Aquinas, St. Paul's letter to the Romans offers an example of this relationship between interiority and exteriority. Uh, quote, Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. And that's Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 20, if you're interested. In the context of the virtue of religion, Aquinas positions his understanding of the relationship between the interior and exterior acts of the virtue of religion in parallel with the distinction between interior and exterior sacrifices that Augustine advances in, his, in Book 10 of his City of God. External things are offered to God not because he has any need of them, but inasmuch as they are presented to God as signs of internal spiritual works that are acceptable to him. According to Augustine, quote, the visible sacrifice is the sacrament or sacred sign of the invisible sacrifice. Aquinas emphasizes that because of the relationship between the interiority of the human intellect and its outward objects, the medium of signs continues to play 
an integral role in sacrifices performed as acts of religion. For Aquinas, to be subjugated under God's authority in this way follows the natural ordering of lower things under the auspices of higher ones. Considered in themselves, however, the external signs of interior sacrifice, as Augustine would put it, are proper acts of the virtue of religion in their own right. So we call devotion and prayer are the first two, the interior acts. But Aquinas is going to position sacrifice itself as, a pro as properly speaking, an external act. Although he respects Augustine's vocabulary of the interior sacrifice, it's biblical language also, you can find it in the Psalms. As a proper act, uh, as a proper virtue, a specific virtue, he's going to situate it in the exterior acts. Okay. Um, Aquinas' treatment of sacrifice, uh, and this is in question 85 of the Secunda Secundae, marks the beginning of his consideration of those external acts of religion by which exterior things uh, are offered to God. So here again, um, at least this understanding of external acts, the way he's presenting it here, it, it really involves the engagement of some kind of exterior object, almost. Uh, it might just be, you can extend it to liturgical actions or other types of things you might be doing, but especially in the context of sacrifice, he's really going to focus, at least when he talks about the virtue in the proper sense, as the, like the doing or offering of something in particular, not just a kind of pious expression of an internal disposition. There has to be something concrete, um, and we'll, we'll talk more about what that means. So among these external offerings, Aquinas recognizes a distinction between those things which are given to God by the faithful and those which are promised to God by vow. Sacrifices found among the first of these, along with oblations, first fruits, and tithes. Um, so it's different from just making God a promise to do something. It could be religious vows, for instance, but it could also be uh, a solemn promise to do something else. That's an exterior act, but that's not quite what we mean here. Right. Um, okay, so as Aquinas established in the prologue of the Secunda Secundae, the specific consideration of human acts that Aquinas will present in, in the Secunda Secundi itself presumes as its backdrop the treatment of more general anthropological concepts that was offered in the Prima Secunda, where Aquinas considered the human person as created in God's image and ordered to beatitude. The importance of these conceptual resources from the Prima Secunda becomes clear when Aquinas turns his attention to sacrifice as a human act in the Secunda Secunda. As acts of the virtue of justice, acts of religion, presume the conceptual context of law itself, which was first introduced in the closing questions of the Prima Secundae. So law becomes a really important category. It's, um, as we'll see here, Aquinas has introduced it in the Prima Secundae, where he introduces what, what I would tend to call a sort of storehouse of anthropological concepts. Who is the human person? How should we think about the human person individually and socially? There's a lot of conceptual resources there in the Prima Secundae. When he moves to consider human acts in themselves into the Secundus Secundae, uh, he's going to draw on a lot of those resources. And here, the idea of law, um, it's intrinsically connected to the perfection of the social order. Uh, so it's not just an external imposition. It helps the individual in the external perfection of themselves, in a sense. Uh, we'll look more about how that, that caches out here. But... Um, if external acts are perfected by, or rather internal acts are perfected by external ones, um, the, the social ordering of those acts is going to become important for Aquinas. Um, so in the course of his treatment of sacrifice as a human act, Aquinas will reference the relationship between religious acts and the broader notions of law and legal precept. Concerning the relationship between the concept of law and those human acts associated with justice, Aquinas has already established in the Prima Secundae that prior to its association with any specific positive ordinance, law, in this sense, uh, lex, uh, uh, if, if you're familiar with the distinction there between lex and use, for instance, he means lex as a as kind of positive ordinance. Um, so law is fundamentally associated with the teleology of human reason as a measure of human action. As the first principle of all human acts, Reason itself is responsible for directing the human person towards the ends for which the same person acts. Taken in this context, the concept of law pertains to reason as both the measure and rule of the acts that reason commands. 
Um, here again, reason. Um, if you understand reason in a, a pre-modern sense, uh, at least in a Thomistic sense, it's intrinsically tied to the idea of the Imago Dei. Uh, there's oftentimes, I mentioned this briefly in the last talk, but um, the, the modern mind tends to think of reason, uh, I would say, uh, in a, a secularist sense and in an individualist sense, right? So that reason, to be rational, if you're rational enough, you'll end up secular, right? <laughs> and you'll probably also end up alone if you listen to Descartes uh, because you started out there, right? Um, so uh, contextualizing reason in the context of the Imago Dei that doesn't mean for clients that there isn't natural teleology proper to nature or that things can't be known apart from faith or anything like that. But it does mean that even the concept of reason itself, um, it's primed for divinization, right? Uh, the idea of being a rational creature, it means that there's an intrinsic aptitude with the help of grace and obediential potency and all sorts of other things that come from God for communion with the Trinity and for indwelling. Um, so when Aquinas says things like law, he often means something a little bit different uh, than we might mean when we say law in a modern sense, at least with, a, especially when he ties it to the teleology of reason. Uh, it's something that's going to help us on the way to beatitude rather than hurt us. Okay. Um, so considered in its basic teleology, the orientation of reason is specified by the objects of practical reason. That is the dimension of human thought and decision-making that concerns the selection and pursuit of specific ends that are concrete and external to the person. Because it is concerned with the practical accomplishment of human aspirations for Aquinas, the object of the practical reason coincides with the final end of human life itself, which is happiness. Because law pertains to the ends of human action as their measure and rule, Aquinas argues that as a measure of human reason in relation to its ends, Law must be principally understood as the measure of the rational creature's pursuit of happiness. Because parts are ordered to the whole, however, the individual rational creature necessarily finds the final fulfillment of their private teleology in the wider group. As a final end of the human person, therefore, individual happiness is necessarily concerned with the universal happiness that perfects the community. Because of its fundamental association with the finality of human happiness, therefore, unlike other dimensions of law, human action cannot be understood solely within the language of any private teleology. Uh, this is not something Descartes would probably understand, I would submit. Um, rather, as a concept, law is essentially concerned with the common good and with that dimension of rational teleology that pertains to this end. Building on Aristotle's ethics, Aquinas reinforces this, arguing that it follows that all forms of legal justice are fundamentally ordered to affect happiness in the whole of society and in its individual parts. For Aquinas, this orientation toward the common good is essential to the definition of law as lex itself. Um, incidentally, all of this you can find um, mostly in question 90 at the end of the Prima Secundae. If you're, if you're interested. Um, okay, so having situated law as a measure or rule of the relationship between the teleology of the rational soul and the common good, Aquinas concludes that law can only be promulgated by those with responsibility for the whole. In the case of human laws, this authority is found in the people taken as a whole or in those who legitimately represent them. Building on this, Aquinas notes that the concept of law may be defined as an ordinance of reason for the common good, duly promulgated and made by the one who has care for the community. Given its association with reason, however, the concept of law is, of course, not entirely external to the person. In one sense, law exists in an intrinsic relationship with the person as a rule in which the person participates. In this sense, the so-called law of the heart can be understood in reference to the final end of the individual as realized in the context of the wider whole. Um, so just to bring this back uh, to the virtue of religion, which is where we're going to head here in a minute, um, we talked about internal versus external acts, the perfectibility of the internal by the exterior act, and the importance of sign as a category that was going to unite those things. And really, 
It's the external act that's the sign. Uh, but who decides what kind of signs get used, right? <laughs> um, and actually, is it enough? Could you just select your own signs? Um, in some cases, maybe you can, if what you're about and what you're up to is only a matter of, of private concern for you. But once you get into things that concern the, the, uh, the common good, rather, um, there's a real need for, um, let's say, public authority, right? Something more. How, how does the teleology and the perfectibility of reason, uh, let's say, towards the supernatural end of beatitude, even in the case of the, the sacramental economy and the incarnation, right? Uh, how does human reason or the, or the ratio of human nature, how does it get there? Um, can it just make up the acts itself? Um, is that enough? Or is there something more that's required? So this gets at the connection between the, like the common good, who might say, right? Uh, the order of reason or the order of law and the, the idea of signs or aesthetics even, if we want to use that language, as a kind of vocabulary for external human acts, both individually and collectively. Okay. Um, okay. Um, so as fundamentally ordered to the common good, oh, we talked about this. So, um, uh, so law can be imposed as an external authority that orders the individual, uh, or it can be something that the individual participates in. So when I participate by a natural reason in the, the natural law, I'm sort of just participating in, in a law, right? But it could also be a positive law that someone says, the speed limit is 35, you know, don't go over it, <laughs> or uh, don't, um, don't do this in this place or whatever, right? Uh, and all that's intended to order the common good. Uh, so in both senses, law functions as a measure or rule of human acts. In the second sense, the imposed sense from without, the promulgated sense, promulgated laws extend to the person, uh, ex external to the person rather, intertwined with the person's own participation in the happiness of the common good by assisting the individual in attaining virtue. So again, happiness in this sense is actually something proper to the common good. Uh, it's not a private enterprise, as we often want to think of it. Uh, I'm responsible for my own happiness. I'll, I'll be plenty happy if you just leave me alone, and I'll decide for myself how to order my life. It's actually not the way that Aquinas or the classical tradition think about it. Right? And therefore, by extension, it's not the way Aquinas thinks about how to attain beatitude. Right? Um, okay. So even in the case of the law of nature, the twofold sense of lex as both promulgated by one with authority over the common good and participated in by the rational mind still holds for Aquinas. With God as its author, this law is promulgated inasmuch as it is instilled within the human intellect. Building on this most fundamental sense of law as both promulgated and participated, Aquinas goes on to describe various species of law emanating from the eternal law of the divine word. In addition to the law of nature, which participates in the eternal law of the word, both human law and further divine positive laws direct human actions towards the common good. Particularly when you're thinking about a supernatural end like beatitude, um, there's a certain sense in which uh, public civic authority might have some involvement, uh, but you really need the precept to come from God himself in the end. So Aquinas has a lot to say about this. Uh, Cicero, as you may know, thinks that the state is responsible for religious practice, basically. Uh, that the state is responsible for ordering and structuring the external signs of public worship. Aquinas is going to take some of those ideas, but also transpose them into a properly Christian context in which the um, participation in the lex or the ordering of the, of the divine word himself is really drawn, um, at least in the church's life, from the incarnation itself. Okay, uh, so back to the virtue of justice. That's where all this is headed, right? <laughs> So when considering the particular aspects of the virtue of justice as a human act, right? So we're moving here from laws and principles to like, how should we act concretely? How should I direct my practical intellect to do something <laughs> concrete uh, rather than just thinking about principles, right? Uh, the right, uh, what we say as right or use in this sense, right? Is the wider context of the subjective and objective dimensions of the concept of law that's already been deploy deployed in the prima secunda. So that's just the intrinsic participation versus external promulgation distinction. While the relationship between the concepts of use and lex is complex, we won't attempt to resolve all that here. Uh, scholars argue about this um, 
But uh, Aquinas' response uh, to the second objection in the first article of his treatment of justice, and this is in the Secunda Secunda again, uh, this illumines something for us of the distinction and unity, and the unity of the inner ordering of use, so justice understood as a kind of right or um, an obligation to a certain act, within the mind of a craftsman and the external expression of the same as a law in the form of a written decree. So notice again, the example here is artistry. It's the same example he tends to use for causality when he's talking about God as an artist creating the world and the human person as an agent acting, right? So now we're just, we've used the concept of law in a, a multivalent and analogical sense to describe some of the specificities of that existing causal relationship between God and the person for the practicalities of human acts and how we might think about those as signs both of the eternality of the law and also the teleology of the subject intertwined in the larger whole. Um, so when considering sacrifice, and that's really what we want to get at here, right? Uh, so when considering sacrifice as a human act in the Secunda Secunda, Aquinas frames his treatment of this specific act of the virtue of religion, not only within the category of justice as a human virtue, but also within the context of law as a reality in which the human person participates. So as an external act, religion is no different from any other act that is contextualized, again, by that causal relationship and the practical need for um, the, uh, the teleology, right, uh, or regula of justice and uh, as a concept to be translated somehow into that practicality, either by the individual who decides this is the right thing to do or by a society that says we're going to do it this way. Okay. To this end, um, in the first article of question 85, again, this is back in the Secunda Secunda, right? Aquinas begins by asking whether the act of offering sacrifice is contained within the law of nature, or whether some further prescriptive species of lex is necessary to perform such acts. Uh, you might think that, that religion uh, as an act is, is simply... Um, well, uh, even if you listen to some church fathers, you, you get the sense it's particular, or at least in its uh, perfected form to Christianity. Now, they may be right about that in a sense. I'm not saying they aren't. But Aquinas really defends and doubles down the idea that a religion, at least in its basic teleology, is, an, is a feature of natural law. That doesn't mean people are getting it right. <laughs> uh, but it is a feature of natural teleology, right? Uh, it might get distorted by original sin, but it's something um, that you can you can find at least as an impulse or an inclination. You should be able to at least. In most cultures, perhaps not our own though. I don't know. It must be there somewhere. <laughs> um, but it, in many other cultures classically, you find all sorts of expressions of human religiosity that are socially ordered, mind you, right? They're, they're not private affairs. Okay. So for Aquinas, this seeming uh, universality, that is the, uh, the, the idea of religion under natural law, uh, indicates that in some sense, sacrifice must be considered as a natural phenomenon. So you can find it everywhere, he says, right? I mean, everyone, everyone sacrifices something. <laughs> um, Aquinas expands on this in the corpus of the article, arguing that reason teaches that the human person is in fact the subject of a higher being. Uh, so for Aquinas, reason is led to this conclusion by perceiving the defects and limitations of the human condition, which prompt persons to realize their need for direction from some higher authority, commonly referred to as God. So even if a culture doesn't know uh, the actual God that we know, uh, there's, a, there's a certain intrinsic teleology to the law of nature, which is propelling people in this direction to, to recognize these basic principles. Um, to illustrate this, Aquinas um, gives the example of the punishment of wrongdoers. While the natural law dictates that such punishment should occur, for Aquinas, it is the task of further positive law, uh, whether instituted by human society or by God directly, to clarify the specific punishments that should be carried out in particular cases. So here, Aquinas makes a really important point, though. Like if you, just because you see religion out there in, in all kinds of different anthropological contexts, all, all kinds of different cultures seem to have it, there doesn't seem to be any real agreement about how to do it, right? Um, it seems that every culture has its own iteration of this. So you have a, a kind of a, a general iteration of the virtue that lacks specificity. And it's actually, in, with practical reason functioning on its own to decide this is what I'm going to do, uh, or a society itself deciding this is, this is how we're going to do it, 
you have a certain uh, canonization of the practical dimension of the externality of religion, that is the signs. What type of signs should we use? How should we structure our, um, our approach to this? Um, okay, uh, so Aquinas is gonna say we actually need positive law effectively, uh, some form of positive law to give specificity to, um, uh, to the form of the virtue. So again, if the interior is perfected by the exterior, it's not fully perfected without some kind of positive law. Um, and even the attempts at perfecting this uh, in pagan culture, for instance, um, don't always work out, right? <laughs> uh, it can get weird. Uh, it, can, uh, it can be, uh, well, you have a lot of half-truths in those situations, a lot of things that are on the right track and then some other things that are really not. Um, but nonetheless, they've been promulgated. So uh, Aquinas is going to position the law of grace and the law of the incarnation as a kind of ratio that, that sets right this teleology and allows for its effective perfection in the vocabulary of signs, in that, in that uh, vocabulary of the externality of the human act. Okay. Um, so the example, again, of the punishment of wrongdoers, uh, it's universally accepted that they should be punished, but how should they be punished? That's left a positive law, right? That's the point there. Okay. So contextualizing uh, whatever offering may be specified by law, uh, again, going back to the prima pars and the prima secundae, um, Aquinas argues that the soul's self-sacrifice should be understood within the broader scope of the person's relationship with God as its creator and final beatific end. Aquinas has already indicated that it is this same concept of image that forms the central joint that links the prima pars with the prima secundae allowing the person to be illumined against the backdrop of divine exemplarity in the former um, and for the image to be revealed as the principle of the same person's actions in the latter. In the context of his treatment of sacrifice in the Secunda Secunda, which builds on those two sections, Aquinas' specific references uh, to the Prima Pars and the Prima Secunda underscore the significance of the unique characteristics of the rational soul as image for his consideration of sacrifice as a human act. So again, it matters um, when you think about sacrifice as a human act, teleology matters, and therefore the type of the species, uh, what type of essence, what type of thing are you talking about when you talk about teleology? Knowing the human person as image is, is gonna matter for Aquinas in this context. Um, here in the second article of question 85, Aquinas' explicit reference to the prima pars likely uh, refers to the third article of question 90, where he's talking about law. And in this text, Aquinas argues that the rational soul stands distinct from all other creatures as specifically dependent on God's direct creative act. Um, this is a, a side point, but other, other types of souls, um, even, you know, so Aristotle will talk about um, the, the way in which plants uh, create, well, sort of breed other plants, right? The, the, the rational soul doesn't work the same way. There's a sort of direct intervention, direct creation on the part of God each time. Um, his following reference to the beatific end of the human person builds on his teaching in the first question of the Prima Secundae, where he argues that while all creatures claim God as their final end in a general sense, the specific character of rational creatures imparts a more specific means of acquiring this end in which they find the end of happiness in knowing and loving God as a similitude of the divine. Because God is the special and exclusive finality of the rational soul's activity, Aquinas reasons that in addition to the soul's interior spiritual sacrifice, the exterior sacrifices that reflect this interiority must be offered to this same divine end as well. So the specific teleology proper to the rational soul in its, both according to nature and according to grace, provide the teleology or the orderedness, the directedness for external acts of religion. That's where he's going here. Okay, so reinforcing the subordinate relationship between these outward sacrifices and the interior offerings they represent within the medium of sign in his response to the second objection, here we're still in question 85, the Sukuna Pars, if you're, if you're interested. Uh, in his response to the second objection, Aquinas states that the value attributed to a sacrifice 
is not found in the material value of the external offering as such. Rather, sacrifices are of value because they function as signs that honor God as king and ruler of all that is. So they derive their value as signs. It doesn't matter how much money you offer, for instance, or what uh, something is worth according to monetary means. It's really its value as a sign of interiority that gives it any value at all. Um, so moving beyond um, these questions, however, for Aquinas, the question of a special virtue uh, indicates uh, further division within the category of virtue more broadly considered. Um, in the interest of time, I'll skip over a little bit of this, but basically the question has to do with whether or not, he's already said you can say sacrifice in a general sense. Lots of things could be sacrifices, but there needs to be like a special object for this virtue to be a, a special virtue. That is a virtue that has a, a kind of object all to itself. Um, so he's going to say that even the externality of sacrifices as external acts of religion have that. They're not just generic acts of religion as a virtue. Um, and uh, yeah, okay. So we'll skip over a little bit of that just in the interest of time. But um, uh, let's see. So as an external act, for Aquinas, sacrifices have a specific discernible character that differentiates them from other more general expressions of religious reverence and even from other forms of exterior oblations and offerings made to God. In his response to the third objection, uh, this is still in uh, this is Article 3 of Question 85, Aquinas offers a proper definition of sacrifice. So here it is. Right? Um, it is a sacrifice when something is done to what is offered to God, such as when an animal is killed and burnt, or when bread is broken, eaten, and blessed. Um, there's a lot to say about uh, how Aquinas specifically defines sacrifice, and in different places he'll offer different, um, not necessarily exclusive definitions of it. But here, this is one that's uh, one of the most popular ones, let's say, in the later Thomistic commentatorial tradition. Uh, but notice here again, I'll, I'll read it again. So, um, it is a sacrifice when something is done to that which is offered, such as when an animal is killed and burnt. So there you have the Old Testament sacrifices under the old law or when bread is broken, blessed, eaten, uh, I'm sorry, broken, when bread is broken, eaten, and blessed. So that's the mass, right, pretty clearly. Um, so you have this idea of something being done, right, uh, that something has to be done to what is offered. So what makes it more than just a generic external expression of religiosity? It's not a vow, like I made a promise to go on a pilgrimage or something like that. That's not what we mean. Uh, but, and it's also not the case that I tithe right, that I just offered, like, some money to the church or something like that, which is good, <laughs> uh, but that's not a sacrifice in the proper sense. It's something that has to be done to it, right? Elsewhere, he used, he'll, lose, he'll use the language of consuming. Uh, this is in question 86, where the offering is consumed. Uh, that has Old Testament resonances as well, but also Eucharistic ones uh, in the present dispensation. Okay. Um, So if we move back, um, just to, uh, to look at some of the, the resonances, um, okay, well, let's, uh, I'll skip ahead here just again so we uh, um, stay on track. Um, so although it's important to recognize that the definition of sacrifice that Aquinas offers here um, in the third article, question 85, that's the one we just looked at, right, applies in the most direct sense to sacrifice in as much as it is a special external act of the virtue of religion, so that idea of doing something or changing the offering, it doesn't apply so much directly when you're talking about uh, sacrifice as a general virtue or religion as a general virtue. Um, we've also seen that Aquinas clearly holds that uh, the governing principle of all sacrifice is found in the interior self-offering of the human soul to God. Extended within, a, within uh, as a general virtue, this self-offering can extend, extend to all human acts, regardless of which specific virtues they may fall under. So here again, Augustine will use the language of, of sacrifice. He has a kind of simile uh, where, where you, know, you have uh, different types of sacrifices. Uh, he, he likes to, he's, he's a literary writer, right? But Aquinas is gonna wanna have a, a very proper definition for the term, but conceptually they're congruent uh, effectively. Um, so interpreting Aquinas, we might distinguish between the formality and finality of the act of sacrifice, the former attributed to the interior self-oblation of the mind, and the second to the external act, which is, is its sign. 
Um, so how do you talk about the, the formality of sacrifice? Uh, you want to look inside, basically, to intent. Uh, but when you talk about finality, right, uh, in terms of showing what's, what the end is, you probably want to look at the sign. Um, so when the same human act is considered, however, it becomes clear that the finality which differentiates this act from the acts of other virtues, and even from other acts of the virtue of religion, is realized in a specific external act. Um, as we have seen, this external act is at once the intrinsic finality of a, of a special act of the virtue of religion and the potential subject of external precept. Um, okay. And that's that idea of sacrifice as a change, right? As something being done to the offering. Um, so in many ways, Aquinas' consideration of the varying uh, sacrificial obligations that pertain under differing forms of law direct our attention to the means by which certain exterior acts are specified as fitting signs of interior sacrifice. Although the definition of the exterior act of sacrifice does not exclude certain other forms of exterior offerings, nonetheless, a wide variety of different exterior acts might well be selected to fit these requirements. In this final article of question 85, this is article four, um, Aquinas, is, Aquinas acknowledges that, considered as a human act in both its internal and external senses, sacrifice may fall under the precept of law in a variety of different ways. This recalls his teaching at the outset of his treatment of sacrifice in question 85, uh, however, where he argues that it belongs to positive law to determine the specific modality by which a given aspect of natural law is to be fulfilled. Applying this specifically to the case of sacrifice, Aquinas argues that precept is required to transcend the general orientation of nature towards such acts of sacrifice. In many ways, these distinctions are perhaps best understood in the context of the relationship between law as prescribed and as participated uh, that Aquinas established in the Primus Secunde and the more detailed consideration of the teleology of human acts themselves that he undertakes in the second part of the second part. Because the relationship between virtue and law is found in their, common out, in their common finality, when sacrifice is considered as a special virtue that pertains to a definitive genre of external human action and therefore external human signs, the possibility of legally specifying the end of this same act becomes more intelligible. So even when the interior sacrifice of the heart is formed correctly, Questions remain about the specific form of the exterior sign that should be employed. What should be sacrificed and how should this be done? This indeterminacy remains because the formation of the interior act of sacrifice does not in itself require that any specific external be used to signify this interior sacrifice. Instead, a range of possible external actions present themselves, each of which is directed towards a different end. Although nothing prevents an individual from selecting a certain exterior act to serve as an outward sign of his own interior devotion, as potential parts of the virtue of justice, the external acts of sacrifice are ordered beyond the individual and toward the common good. In this sense, social dimension of the virtue of justice imparts a communal orientation to those special virtues that operate under its formality. Therefore, although the legal specification of external acts of sacrifice does not command or override the individual's personal moral act, specification of the external act makes a unity of external action possible in which the personal teleology of interior devotion finds its fulfillment in its participation in the social whole. For Aquinas, the question of sacrifice as an exterior act of the virtue of religion, precept, and public ritual are fundamentally connected. What makes sacrifice as an external act of the virtue of religion possible? Are priests required for all kinds of sacrifice? For Aquinas, not all sacrifices require priests, interestingly. Priests are required, however, for those sacrifices that are specially ordained to the divine cult. Outside the realm of this special ordination, however, others can offer sacrifice as well, possibly. In addition, 
virtuous acts already possessed of a certain motivating ratio under the heading of another virtue can be called sacrifices in the general sense uh, when they are performed out of reverence for God. Aquinas acknowledges that these virtuous acts can bear the special imprint of the virtue of religion. An act of almsgiving or self-denial, for example, that is commanded by the virtue of religion takes on something of the character of religion as a special virtue directed to the honor of God. Aquinas calls this the general sense of the virtue of religion. Although Aquinas does not rule out the possibility that special acts of religion in which religion acts immediately uh, and not by way of commanding another virtue could be performed under the guidance of natural reason, sacrifice in its specific form does require the aid of precept for Aquinas. It's interesting to so he says uh, there are it's possible that this could happen naturally, but he doesn't give a lot of examples of like it actually happening in, in, in a fruitful way, at least. Right? In conclusion, I want to tie together some threads here and uh, do a little work to prepare for tomorrow. So what we've seen here, this has been an awful lot about the virtue of religion and the virtue of justice and the possibility of using external signs, both considered as things and as acts, right? So sacrifice involves both. It's not enough just to have acts. There's got to be something sacrificed and something done to it. So you're talking about a certain, uh, a certain kind of human act that does something to something or other. Um, if you use the Old Testament examples that Aquinas gives, it's the killing of an animal, animal possibly. Or in the case of the Mass, the breaking, blessing, and consuming of bread, right, and the form of the Eucharist. So you have, um, you have a sign, and then you have the a human act which is engaged in manipulating that sign, uh, and that's a sacrifice. So you have the, both the intrinsic teleology of human acts and external things intersecting. Um, this is what makes the, the sacramental economy, when he brings that in in the Tertia Pars in the third part of the Summa, just a, a place of intersection between the realm of sacred signs and human activity, in which we're not only sort of commanded to do things or encouraged to do things, but we find our sanctification in the perfection of our natural teleology as it's caught up in the teleology of Christ's humanity. Uh, so what I want to do next time is look at how specifically Aquinas' treatment of Christ uh, as a priest, and then also looking at the reality of the Eucharist, how he uses this sort of natural anthropology of signs um, in the social context of the virtue of justice to talk about the way in which you, you, can, you can develop a Christological sensibility uh, about how signs and aesthetics ought to look, right? What does involvement with physical things uh, look like when you allow Christ to be the lex, if you will, the regular or the rule that directs all of those things? So in this lecture, we've uh, tried to lay down some, a lot of sort of basic principles, right, that I hope will yield to um, a more clear understanding, perhaps, of how, how Christ himself, as a, as a kind of rule or guiding principle or regular, right, or a kind of, um, you, you have a sense of, of law even as the word reveals himself. We'll talk about this next time uh, a little bit more clearly. But um, how that can, can serve to um, provide the opportunity for real deification when we start to interact sacramentally with uh, natural reality, uh, but through a Christological lens. Okay, so I'll stop there and uh, I'll take some questions. Oh yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. So, if we're thinking about um, one way is to think about a sign, um, it gestures to a reality, right? So a reality uh, that's either past, present, or future. So it could be a sign of something that's not in the present. Uh, it could be a sign of something that is in the present or something that will be in the future. So Augustine uses the example of smoke and fire uh, to talk about this. This is in De Doctrina Christiana. Um, so the smoke is a sign of the fire. Even if you don't see the fire, you know the fire must be there because you see the smoke. I mean, and you infer uh, the existence of the fire. Uh, but sometimes you see the smoke and the fire. So this is actually one of the ways uh, that Augustine will talk about the, uh, the way in which signs yield to reality as the word comes into the, our presence through the incarnation of the sacraments. But there you, you have kind of a basic way of understanding what a sign is. Now, when you talk about um, 
both analogy and metaphor will play on the language of signs. Um, but at its most basic level, when you think about it epistemologically, just in terms of the theory of knowledge and how we know things, if you look at uh, John of St. Thomas or some later Thomas, uh, so he's in like the 17th century or so, right? Uh, John Dealey's written a lot on John of St. Thomas and, and epistemology. Whether you agree with all of his readings of Aquinas or not isn't, isn't so much the point, but he, he really makes a lot out of the idea of sign as the sort of, it's the medium of encounter with the real, right? So when I encounter, I don't know, just this podium or this microphone, um, this is the thing with philosophy classes, it's always classroom furniture that gets dragged in as the example, right? <laughs> not very interesting. Um, but it's, uh, you know, the, my sensory impressions are sort of a gateway to the, to the real, to the reality. Um, so that, that's a sign in a sense, right? Um, so it's the way I encounter the object, you might say. Uh, so it's a basic feature of Aquinas's epistemology and what he would call sort of moderate realism, right? In the sense that there's the object itself is not inside my head, nor, nor is my um, perception of it so skewed that I have no contact with it whatsoever. I have a sort of analogical relationship with it through the medium of signs, right? And I trust my senses by and large. It's the exception to the rule when I don't trust my senses, right? This is, again, Descartes is wrong about this, right? It's this whole thing about the tower. Does anyone remember this from his meditations? Where like, he's like, how can I know that the tower is real when it's different sizes, depending on how close I am to it? Like, I, I mean, just walk closer or something, you know? <laughs> like, it's the same size as the quarter, you know, or whatever. So, I mean, it's, I mean, maybe just, you know, shift your gaze. Aristotle will tell us, you know, I mean, just if you, if one of your senses is broken or deficient, just use a different one, you know? I mean, <laughs> let me walk up to the tower and, you know, see if it's really the same size uh, as, the, as the dime or whatever. Anyways, um, so that's, so sign, it's, it, it, we have to start thinking about epistemology first. And that's why in the first talk, I tried to lay out the kind of the value of analogy and abstraction, even though, uh, and you don't have to become a metaphysician to do that. We're actually just doing that on a natural level, intuitively. Like when I'm encountering this stuff, I'm able to walk around this podium without tripping over it, hopefully, uh, <laughs> uh, because I, you know, I trust my, my senses and I'm, I, I have a sense of the real. Uh, so I'm able to collect and synthesize my sense impressions without really thinking about it. The higher orders of, of, of uh, abstraction and speculation about being, just, just build on that as a, as a science and as a specific discipline for, uh, well, philosophy nerds or whatever. <laughs> um, but it is, uh, sign itself is uh, deeply tied to our perception of reality. So when we use a metaphor or an analogy, we're playing in the language of signs either way. Um, and the sacraments will do both, I think. So, yeah, okay, yeah. How you were talking about signs and the internal versus external dispositions, mm -hmm. or the internal dispositions versus the external acts. It seems like with the virtue of religion, that yeah. it, since we're social as human beings, it's society, the state, the church is naturally concerned with the external acts. Mm -hmm. So, could you just talk briefly about you know the, the, the most modern societies? There is religious freedom. Yes. And so if the society chooses to sort of punt the question of religion, mm -hmm. in a way, are we not really giving justice to God in the, in the proper sense? Yeah, so uh, um, there's, uh, I think, I think we're in a space now where a lot of the um, naivete of the Enlightenment is starting to decompose a little bit, you know, and... Um, <laughs> Uh, it's certain, things were simpler in earlier times when really, you know, cultures and societies were united by common religious practice and there was, there was no ambiguity in that regard. I don't know that there's a clear pathway back to that uh, from our present state, but I, did you want to? I was going to say, just yeah. like, is there a danger in that? Yeah. In, in having a common religious practice? So I, I think, um, I think assuming that a secular fulfillment uh, of human teleology, I think that's dangerous, right? Assuming that the common good and that uh, the personal fulfillment and good of the human person can be construed in purely secular terms is a mistake. Um, and therefore, is, it's dangerous in the sense that it, it uh, truncates the, the teleology of the person personally and socially in a way that is not helpful. So whether you allow that to flourish in a sort of hands-off approach through just not interfering with the religious practice, or you live in a time and place where uh, there's more uh, unity on that, on that subject socially. No matter what kind of culture or society you live in, there's an obligation, I, I think, to form community, you know? So to be intentional about 
forming uh, the communion of the church in in its locality, in the particularity of our time and place, is, is just is really important. And in a certain sense, that falls back on the individual and the local community. I think to to form whether. So Cicero, as I mentioned, did think, and the state has a role to play in just deciding these things, right? Um, so there are, um, there are certainly grounds within classical philosophy, broadly speaking. Uh, Aristotle talks about this too, uh, that, you know, that the, the state has a certain authority over religion. I'm not sure I'm ready to give most um, modern secular states too much authority over religion. I, I mean, I, I would rather that they... Um, they <laughs> Um, didn't didn't interfere too much. Um, if you look at, for instance, the way secularism is played out in France, for for example, um, you know, uh, yeah, uh, where uh, a secular public square means no religion is allowed, basically, right? Uh, certainly not Catholicism, right? and certainly no Catholic priests. <laughs> but um, so I think uh, living in a, a let's say a more secular state can be frustrating at times and have a lot of challenges. But I think. Uh, that hasn't stopped us from forming communion uh, amongst ourselves, uh, and I think, yeah. So I'm I'm thankful we have we have that opportunity at least. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question or not. But yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Would Aquinas call martyrdom a sacrifice, properly speaking, or would he make some distinction? Because if I am sacrificing my life for my body at least, right? That's not a naked external act in the strict sense. It's me. This, yeah, he, Saint Stephen, yep. not sacrificing. Someone else is doing it, right? And you wouldn't actually say. Uh, so Aquinas t talks about this, and Cardinal Cajetan talks about this too when he's commenting on this section of the Tertia Pars on Christ's priesthood. If you use the definition from the Secunda Secunde of sacrifice, how do you handle the cross, for instance? Right. Is he, he's offering himself? We know that from Scripture, right? Uh, but the people killing him aren't offering a proper sacrifice of any kind, right? That's that's not where we want to go with this. In fact, it's a sacrilege, right? What they're engaged in, right? So, um, some way the act itself is not totally external. I, if I'm offering myself, I'm not, the, the Eucharist is external. Yeah. He's on the altar. Right. So, this is actually a big debate in early modern Thomism. If, if you're interested in the, the Byzantine intricacies of early modern Thomism, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of back and forth about whether or not, um, is it the internal act or, or is it the, the external? Is it the fact that something was done externally, and it, is that all that matters, or is it the internal act? Cajetan's going to focus more on the internal act as specifying the external act as a sign. There's a lot of resources here that we've seen that support that, uh, but there's other folks, like I'm, I'm thinking particularly Robert Bellarmine and others, um, who will really focus on the external. You know, and, you know, what, what makes the Eucharist a sacrifice, for instance, right, is it's that certain things are done externally. That's not wrong uh, necessarily, but it, it's not without some other conceptual problems too. When you, especially when you try to apply it, then the crucifixion, uh, the same logic that is right. Uh, if you want the two things to be defined as a sacrificial offering on the same conceptual terms. All right, great. Thank you. Thank you.